You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 25. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Wanted to build off today from what I discussed the past episode. And what I talked about regarding my experiences in Mexico, Guatemala, and here in the United States, going all the way back to 1996. And building on then a conversation that I've had three times in the past week with three different individuals that really gets at the philosophical root, I think, of the discussion of human trafficking, child sex trafficking, but abuse in general, sexual abuse, but also physical abuse, verbal abuse, and the nature of ingratitude and shame in that in the past week in those conversations, the, the topic has been, has been, has been, all of a sudden I'm Canadian. It has been the, the attitude toward satisfaction and whether or not we as individuals can ever be satisfied with what we have achieved, received, accomplished, failed at, lost. In particular, the conversations I had were at the gym with students and we were discussing the nature of promotions, belt promotions in jiu-jitsu in particular. And that no matter who you are, when someone else that you train with is promoted, whether it's white to blue, blue to purple, purple to brown, whatever it might be, there's at least a little part of you that is jealous and envies that person who was promoted. But why is that? Even people I know who say to themselves, I'm not ready to be promoted yet, I don't deserve to be promoted yet, still there's that little itch, little envy, little coveting of that belt that someone else received, that promotion. What is that? Well, in psychological terms, it's simply ego and this sense of self-importance, that I am the most important person, not only in the room, but in the whole universe, who's ever lived, ever. And that every conversation, every thought, every activity in the world, ever, should be directed toward improving my life and making me happy. I was just joking with my coach last night after classes that I had a really good role against a higher belt who has trashed me and thrown me around and folded me up into different shapes since we met. And then on Monday, for four plus minutes, I held guard. And in about the last 10 seconds, I caught him in a fly trap, which is a triangle from side. And then the bell rang and I shouted because I was excited. I was elated. I was frustrated. It was just a really enjoyable round of sparring with a person that I deeply respect and love and who challenges me every time we roll. And I had success in that moment like I've never experienced before. That was one of those moments that we enjoy. And I know the next time that we roll, he's going to come at me harder and with more technicality and apply more of his, of his will toward the sparring match because now I've raised the bar for him. And so he's going to come at me with more intensity and more purpose and not take it as easy on me. And he's great at doing that. And that's why I respect him and love him so much. 
But I was teasing my coach about this because my coach was no further away than 10 feet at any time when I was sparring with Nate. And so, of course, I look up and he's not looking. And I look up and he's not looking. And I look up and he's not looking. And I'm thinking to myself, why are you not paying attention to what's happening? I mean, sure, there's about 20 other people on the mat right now. But why are you not watching me? You're right next to me. This is important. And I, I was being tongue-in-cheek about it and, and acknowledging how egocentric and narcissistic that thought process, that attitude is. But it's an honest critique of myself masked in a joke. That when I train, I do expect my coach to be watching me all the time. So that when I ask him, what do I need to improve? How could I have done this better? What did I do wrong? How did I get submitted? I expect him to be able to say, well, because I was watching everything that you did and studying everything that you did, I can offer this critique. Versus I've got all these other students I have to pay attention to. All of these other people also think that I should be only watching them. Everyone is coming to me and asking me for advice, for counsel, for critique, just like you are. And if I had the, the mental focus to be able to pay attention to every single person on the mat at every moment that they're there, well, he'd be a god. But he's not. He's just a man. He's just a large black belt who likes to fold me into different shapes. But that's, that's human nature then, to, to think or imagine or want your, yourself to be the center of the universe, the center of everyone's attention. And when you don't get that, like when it comes time for belt promotion, even if you don't believe you're deserving of a promotion, you're still a little stung. Not that you wanted the belt, but because you wanted the recognition and the affirmation that where you're at, how you're progressing, people are paying attention. And in that sense, you're then important. But as I've learned through promotions, through, through advancing and through being recognized and getting medals in tournaments and stuff like that, as soon as you receive that award, that trophy, that promotion, you're already thinking about the next promotion, the next trophy, the next medal, the next whatever. So it's like the old analogy that you climb the mountain to get to the peak, but then once you stand on the peak and you look out and survey what's around you, you see another mountain in the distance with a higher peak. So then you have to climb that peak because there's always another peak. There's always another mountain. There's always another struggle, another challenge, another promotion, another tournament, another fight, another whatever. There's always more. And we're never satisfied with good enough because we always want more. It's like the old novel, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. We always want more. We're never satisfied. And so we set these goals for ourselves. We smash the goals. And as soon as we smash the goal, we're already looking for the next goal. We're never satisfied. And in a sense, I respect that because I'm the type of personality that's never satisfied with good enough. I'm always challenging myself and looking for challenges. I'm always putting myself in uncomfortable situations to get comfortable in uncomfortable situations, always pushing myself past the line and seeing, well, how far beyond the line can I go? And is that, is that a real line? Is that a real limitation? Is it really impossible? I have that personality. But it's a dichotomy then. 
that I'm never satisfied with good enough, but I have to be satisfied with good enough because I have to be satisfied with the limitations of my mind and my body. I have to be satisfied with the limitations of where I'm at and what I'm doing in the moment and who I'm with. I might want to be a world champion fighter, but I have to accept the limitations of my age, my mind and body, where I'm at as far as my gym in relation to other gyms and who I'm training with and my coaches, my opportunities to compete and where and when and the level of competition. There's all of these factors that are out of my control that I have to be satisfied with. I have to be able to say, I must say, this is good enough. I was talking with my friend who's the other Muay Thai coach. At a certain point, you have to acknowledge I'm an amateur, the person that I admire or whose example I seek to emulate is a professional. And the reason that I can't accomplish what he's accomplished, whether it's uh, Ramon Deckers or who else, Kevin Ross, the soul assassin, shout out to Kevin Ross, I, I love Kevin, is, or John Wayne Parr, other Muay Thai fighters that I, that I respect and I seek to emulate their style, they're professionals who have dedicated their whole lives to Muay Thai. I have not. And therefore, I can't expect to not only emulate them, but become like them because of the limitations of my age and my physical abilities and where I'm at in my life and who I train with and where I train out of and competition availability and so forth, opportunities for competition. But can I be satisfied with good enough as far as my skill set, my technique, where I'm at as far as my progress in this art called Muay Thai? with the level of competition and so forth. Can I be satisfied? Is it good enough? And can I say it's good enough while simultaneously saying I'm never satisfied with good enough, which is the dichotomy. Because in the one sense, what I have control over, I can say I'm never satisfied with good enough. The choices that I have available to me within the context of my abilities, my limitations, my weaknesses, my strengths, and so on, can I never be satisfied with good enough? But with those things that are out of my control, can I say I'm satisfied with good enough? So really, I think that's what it boils down to is, can I be grateful for what I have and what I've received, but yet at the same time, still be grateful, yet still be hungry and still strive to challenge myself and struggle and push beyond the boundaries and limitations that I or others set for me and say, well, what's within my control? And what's not? What can I say I'm satisfied with? And what can I say I'm not satisfied with? And is that rational? Is that, is that real? Versus me trying to force myself beyond boundaries that are impossible to overcome. I'm 49 years old. I'm never going to become a world, tie, world champion Muay Thai fighter at 49 years old. Even if I dedicated the rest of my life to accomplishing that, I'm just not. There's just too many variables there that are out of my control that make that an impossibility. And most likely, if I attempted to do that, I'd ruin relationships, I'd go bankrupt, I'd get knocked out a lot. There's just too many things that are out of my control. So I have to be satisfied with good enough in that sense. But in other things that I do have control over, which brings me to a meditation on my one of my heroes, my real heroes, there are other things, though, that I look at, like I've been talking about, that I'm not satisfied with, that I'm saying to myself, no, I'm not satisfied with good enough. There's, there's more that I can do. There's something that I can do to change my situation. 
And this goes back to what I talked about then in the last episode about my experiences in Mexico. In 96, when I was at the orphanage, I met a doctor and his wife and their family. And they had also recently arrived at the mission and he was working at the clinic there. And then she was involved with the outreach team and ministry at the church and so forth. And when I saw her, and I still remember this, the first time I saw her, she immediately stood out to me because she was a redheaded Mexican. And I'd never seen a redheaded Mexican up to that point. And not only was she a redheaded Mexican, she was a fair-skinned, green-eyed, redheaded Mexican, which I had never seen. Which in, in the, the long, long time that I lived in Mexico, all of a month and a half. <laughs> but I saw her from across the compound and it immediately struck me, who is that? And the way she walked with purpose and she was very intense, that also struck me. And I was immediately drawn to her. And then she went on with whatever, wherever she was going. I went on with my work. And then two weeks later, she came into the warehouse where I was working at. And she needed help replacing a doorknob in their house. And so I was assigned to do that. And as a consequence, just in that brief interaction, she noticed me. And she took my measure. And all of a sudden, a week later, I was invited to their house for dinner, I think, at least a week or two later. But this all take, took place within a month's time. And I didn't speak Mexican, Spanish. I didn't speak Mexican. Wow. I didn't speak Spanish. <laughs> I didn't speak Spanish. I didn't know anything about the culture. I didn't know anything about the people. And this woman just came up to me and said, we want you to come to our house for dinner. Here's the date. Here's the time. Show up then. And she was also a translator, so she spoke fluent English. She had actually gone to school to learn how to be a translator, even though her husband didn't speak any English at that time, or very broken English. But his English was as good as my Spanish, so it was perfect. So I went to their house, and I met their family, and I met her two sons. Her daughter was not there at that time. She was away for the summer. And over the course of that dinner, something happened, and we ended up bonding, and eventually they adopted me into their family. At 24 years old, I was adopted into this family. They took me on and just made me one of their own. And later, when I asked my mom what it was about me that caused her to ask me to come to dinner, and then motivated her to invite me back and motivated my dad to give me his name and to announce it in front of the whole church and the community. What was it about me that first attracted you to me? Because there was all these other people there. There were all these other people my age that were there, but why me? And she said, because when I looked at you, you had the eyes of a lion. When I looked at you, I saw my eyes looking back at me. You were haunted. You were lost. You were like an orphan but yet you had these intense eyes, these eyes of a lion. And I saw myself in your eyes. And I thought, okay, this is someone I, I have to get to know. And what she meant was that we were both deeply, deeply damaged people, broken in many ways, who had gone through terrible trauma in our lives and had arrived at that spot in that country on that compound right then and there for each other, that God had brought us together. 
And so to this day, over 20 plus years later, I'm still a part of that family. And my mom's story is interesting in the sense that she was a redheaded, fair-skinned, green-eyed Mexican because her mother was a world-famous ballerina and her father was a Spaniard who was a famous conductor, orchestral conductor. And her mother had to decide, keep the baby and give up my career or maintain my career and give up the baby. And since the father didn't want to take responsibility for the baby, the mother gave Alma up to a quote-unquote foster home. This home was in a dump. It was in a garbage dump. And the home was basically a one-room shack. And this woman took in these children, these orphans, in order to get money from the government and food vouchers from the government. But she did not care for these children. She didn't love them. They were all exploited and abused. They were all responsible for raising themselves and each other. My mother then, my, my Mexican mother, was abused since she was a baby. She was sexually molested by her mother's boyfriends and by other foster boys in that house since she was three or four years old and systematically raped by her foster brothers, her mother's boyfriends, and others until she eventually ran away when she was seven and lived in the dump. And by the time she was 12, she was living on the streets and doing drugs and running from the police who would, you know, grab street kids up off the street and abuse them and rape them and put them in jail and beat them and even kill them. And she was on her own from the time that she was seven. I mean, she was on her own as an orphan, obviously, but when she finally ran away at seven and then was on the street and living on her own from seven all the way up until she was a teenager, that was her life. She was a garbage kid in more ways than one. And she had to take care of herself. She had to survive. She's one of the few people who says, who I know when she says, I'll cut you, I truly am afraid of her because she learned how to use a knife at seven years old and she's cut and stabbed a lot of people in order to survive and stay alive. And so as a cocaine addict, as someone who was raped and abused for most of her life, she fled to the mountains at a certain point when she was late in her teens. And she had to, actually, because the police were after her and they were going to kill her. And there's a whole story behind that, too. It involves drugs and corruption. and She had to flee to the mountains. She fled to a hippie commune, actually. And that's where she met this medical student who was up there, too. And they fell in love, and they were going to go to Nicaragua to join the Contras and to fight in the Afghan, or the uh, Iran, you know, the whole Iran-Contra scandal. If you don't, go back and check that out. In the early 80s, Nicaragua, the Sandinistas, guns for drugs for money, all that stuff. George Bush, what else? American Made by Tom Cruise actually is about Barry Weiss, who was a part of flying drugs into the country and the whole smuggling operation that was being run through Arkansas when Clinton was the governor. But it's an interesting story nonetheless. But narrowly speaking, my mom and dad then, when they were still dating, they were going to go to Nicaragua and fight with the Sandinistas. 
But then they found out my mom was pregnant with Hosanna, my sister, and they had a rule that you couldn't fight in the revolution if you were pregnant. So they were stuck, and my dad had to go back to medical school and finish to support his girlfriend and this new baby. And long story short, along the way, they both converted. They became church planters and missionaries, planted dozens of churches, actually, and then ended up eventually at the mission that I was at. And my mom taught me then, out of that whole experience to up to the point when we met, what she taught me then was, one, never be satisfied with good enough because you can always better yourself, but also be satisfied with what God has given you because there's just a lot that's out of your control that you can't do anything about. She had a choice. She made a choice when she was seven years old to run away from the situation she was in. She made a choice about learning how to use a knife. She learned how to feed herself and clothe herself and take care of herself. Those are choices she had to make for herself so that even at seven, eight, nine years old, she made that choice for herself. She made the choice to run away and escape the police. She made a choice to keep the baby. She made a choice to marry my father. She made a choice to go into that church where she was converted. There were choices. And when she made those choices, it changed her life eventually for the better. At the time she made the choices, she was just trying to survive. She didn't think of it as a challenge or a struggle. It was just the reality of life. If I don't do this, I'm going to die. Someone's going to kill me. I'm going to starve to death. I'm going to end up a prostitute on the streets. I've got to make a choice. I've got to do something. And she did, which is why she's my hero because I can't even imagine at seven years old having to make that choice. Do I stay and continue to be raped and abused or do I run away and live in the dump and survive somehow? And so that's what she taught me when we met and I first got to know her and her husband was that I was a survivor, but I hadn't looked at myself that way. I had looked at myself as a victim all the time of people and of circumstances that were outside of my control that I had no power over. But I allowed that victim mentality then to color my vision of everything so that every relationship I had, I felt, I, I not only felt, but I made choices that fed into that victim mentality so that I surrounded myself with people who victimized me because I believed I was unworthy of love. I surrounded my myself with people who didn't love me. Because I was ashamed of who I was, I surrounded myself with people who made me feel ashamed about who I was. Because I didn't recognize that I, had, I could make a choice. Instead, I just assumed, because I had made the choice over and over again to be a victim, I just assumed I had no choice. And that way I could blame other people for what happened to me. But what I learned from my mom then is that you always have a choice about those things that are within your control. But there are things outside of your control. And when those things come up, do you choose to stay? Can you choose to stay or can you choose to get away from them? Can you choose to distance yourself from people who are abusive or hurtful or morally evil? Can you choose to distance yourself from people who are spiritually sick and who are predatory and prey upon others to make themselves feel better? Can you choose to improve your physical or spiritual or mental well-being? 
Well, what's holding you back from that? Who is holding you back from that? There are things we have a choice about, and there's things we don't have a choice about. But so often, in my experience, we get so caught up in what can I get next? What can I achieve or accomplish for myself next that we don't take that step back and just objectively ask ourselves, why am I not satisfied? Why am I not grateful? Why isn't this good enough? And, and really holding that dichotomy intention that, yeah, there are some times you have to say, I have to be satisfied with this is good enough. This is as good as it's going to be based on my physical limitations, my intellectual limitations, my inability to get out of this situation right now, whatever it might be. But then there's also never being satisfied with good enough because there are things and relationships and job opportunities and interactions and engagements that we, that we experience that we do have a choice about. We don't have to stay. We don't have to be abused. We don't have to be exploited. But if we don't take that step back and reflect on the dichotomy and hold that tension, how often do we just try to flatten that out and say it's all of a piece, it's all one thing, to our own detriment? I think that's what I see happening so much with the lack of a public conversation about anything nowadays. Even online you see this. It's as if the only people online anymore are those who go online to prove how right they are and how wrong everyone else is. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody. It's as if social media actually fosters and exploits that ego-driven need to be right. So we only follow and friend people who tell us we're right. We only like posts that affirm what we already believe is right. We block and ban and unfollow and unfriend people who we believe are wrong. We curse and damn people who we believe are wrong because we refuse to listen to any viewpoint or opinion that contradicts what we already think. We tie our own identity up to our opinions or our feelings. But we just can't step back, it seems like, anymore and think. Objectively think, critically think. We can't embrace specific values like courage and integrity and dignity and self-respect, self-confidence, because we don't put ourselves, we don't choose to put ourselves in positions to gain self-confidence and dignity and courage and integrity. We don't surround ourselves with people who challenge us or critique us in a way that builds us up. Instead, we surround ourselves with people who criticize us and tear us down in order to build themselves up. We're unsatisfied with things that we have control over and we're satisfied with things that we don't have control over or vice versa. It's, it's this constant push and pull where we slide into one or the other ditch. There's things I don't have control over and I'm unsatisfied with that. But there's nothing I can do about it. So I just waste time and energy obsessing over it, ruminating on it. But then there's things I do have control over that I choose not to make a decision about because I don't want to take responsibility for the decision I don't want to accept the consequences of what I choose to do or not to do. So I act as if I don't have a choice. And we constantly just go back and forth between these two polarities. Rather than try and walk that middle path and hold that tension, hold to that dichotomy, there's some things I have control over and some most things I don't. There's some things that are within my ability to choose and most things are not. Some things I can say, no, that's not good enough. I'm not satisfied with that. I can do better. 
But then there's other things I have to say. Yeah, I guess I have to be satisfied with that. I can't do any better. And But at the root of that even is, for me, gratitude. That I can be grateful for the things that I can choose to, to, to pursue. And I can be grateful for the things that I don't have any control over. For me, it's hard. It's very difficult to be grateful for stuff that I don't have control over. People, situations, events. It's easier for me to look at people and events that I don't have control over and point at them and condemn them and say, you know, God damn you for that. Versus, okay, I don't like what he's doing, so what am I doing to offer a positive option? If I don't like the way that he runs the tournament, well, what am I doing? Am I starting a tournament? If I don't like what you're doing in your tournament, why don't I start my own tournament and do it the way that I think is best? Instead, what do I do? I sit on the sidelines and I critique you on social media and I tear you down and say, well, that, that tournament's BS and I would never compete in that tournament and nobody should compete in that tournament. Well, what good does that do for anybody? It does nothing for anybody and definitely doesn't do anything for me versus, okay, I don't like the way that person runs his tournament. I'm going to go start my own tournament and I'm going to do it my way and we'll see how it goes. Maybe I'm successful, maybe I'm not, but I'll work at it and I'll apply myself and I'll get after it and we'll see what happens. But complaining, what is? it's like the old cliche, complaining never solved anything. But that's why we like to complain because then we don't have to take responsibility. But I think if we could just hold that dichotomy like I've been talking about and recognize that all of life is, is a dichotomy, all of life is made up of paradoxes, then maybe we could strive for gratitude, recognizing that, yeah, a lot of what I have in my life is a gift. A lot of what I have in my life has been received from other people, like my relationship with the doctor and his family. But there's just other things I don't have control over, like how people interpret my, my words and my actions. Some people are going to listen to me and say, he's full of it. Other people are going to listen to the exact same words and say, this guy's great. I got to listen to him some more. There's going to be some people that look at the way I behave in the gym and say, oh, he's arrogant. And then there's other people who are going to look at the exact same behaviors and say, wow, look at how humble he is. Look how helpful he is. I don't have any control over that, how people perceive me, their interpretation of me. I only have control over how I speak and how I choose to act in those moments. And the fact is, a lot of the time, I'm not going to act appropriately. and I'm not going to say the right things. And it's going to come out wrong, or it's going to be inefficient, or it's going to be ineffective, and I'm going to look like I don't know what I'm doing or talking about. But if I live with gratitude, and I'm always striving to improve myself and grow, I can listen to that critique and say, I disagree with your critique, but I'm going to take that, and I'm going to use it as fuel to get better at how I express myself, be more conscious of how I'm speaking and behaving when I'm around other people who are looking to me as a teacher or a coach or who are looking to me as a training partner. I'm going to do what I need to do, what I have a choice about to improve and grow and get better. And then when I don't, when I fall short, I can take a step back and ask, did I fall short because I made the wrong choices or did I fall short because that's the limits of my abilities, my talents and my skills? But if I'm grateful for everything I have, even the challenges, even the failures, I can do that. But if I'm not living with gratitude, if I'm not engaged daily in activities that leverage that gratitude, 
then I'm forever complaining. I'm forever lamenting my victimhood. And I'm then always missing opportunities to improve and to escape from a bad situation or improve my situation. So today, anyways, for this debrief, that's what I'm chewing on. That's what I'm breaking down. Hold that dichotomy. Live in gratitude. And choose that ethic that there's going to be times when I can be satisfied and say, that's good enough. And I'm grateful for that. And there's other times I'm going to say, it's not good enough. I'm not satisfied with that. Let's keep going. Let's improve it. Let's make it better. Let's make it better for other people. Ultimately, and most importantly for me, it's not just that, hey, how is this going to make me better? But ultimately, it's, well, how is this going to make things better for everybody? How is everybody going to benefit from this? Or at least the people that are around me, how can they benefit from this? How can I improve the lives of the people around me? What, how, whatever way, shape, or form that takes. So think about that, that there's always somebody that you can talk to who's been through a traumatic situation, who's had it worse than you, who would trade spots with you in a second, even though you sit there and say to yourself, I can't believe how low I've sunk. There's always someone lower. And ask yourself, what can I learn from that person who was lower than I was, who started off deeper in the cracks than I did, who's been hurt worse than I've ever been hurt, but yet they made choices to survive. They made the choice to live. They made the choice to get clean and sober. They made the choice to dedicate them li their lives to service of the other. Like, how did they make those choices? What can I learn from them? What can I learn from being in a relationship with a person like that? Why am I not in a relationship with people like that? Because those are the people that inspire and motivate. Those are the people that are going to encourage and also call you on your bullshit in a way that you can say, thank you for calling me on that. You're right. I have been ignoring that. I am lying to myself about that. There's nobody that can read me faster than my mom, <laughs> my Mexican mom. That's why I can never lie to her, which is great. There's so much freedom in just being able to be yourself even the ugliest parts, even the insecure, insecure, fearful parts. And to say, yeah, I am afraid. I am insecure because of these reasons. What do you think about that? And trusting that because she's been there, she's been in the darkness. She came out of the darkness. She's a light in the darkness. She's going to say, hey, you're a light too. You're a light in the darkness. Go out there and enlighten the darkness make the world a brighter place. And here's how you do it. You do it by acknowledging your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses. You acknowledge your struggles. You acknowledge your failures. You don't try and hide them from other people. You point at where you broke and put yourself and were put back together. You acknowledge both your strengths and your weaknesses. You don't run away from where you're arrogant and proud and your ego drives your decisions. But you also don't run away from where you killed your ego and your confidence in yourself and your abilities and your accomplishments. You hold the tension, you hold that dichotomy and tension. And in that way, you can be satisfied with yourself as a human being. You can be grateful for the person you are and the life you have in that moment, but also be unsatisfied with that and say, there's still more to be done. There's still more to be done. There's still someone else out there who's going to need help. There's still someone out there who needs me to show up for them. 
And so I'm always preparing, always training, always being critical of myself, always holding myself to a higher standard of accountability than even other people. Because when the day comes that someone needs me to show up and I can show up for them so that they can be satisfied, so that they can say, you showing up for me, that really, man, that's, that's as much as I could hope for. That's as good as it gets. How could I not? How could I not? When Alma showed up for me all those years ago when I needed her more than anybody else in the world. And she showed up and changed my life forever. So thank you, Mom. And thank you to all of you for showing up and listening. Your time and attention is valuable, and I don't treat that lightly, and I appreciate every one of you for the feedback and for supporting the podcast. That's all I got today, so I will talk to you again Saturday. All right, I love you. Peace.